Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, August 1st, 2021. In this message, Richard Frankwitz preaches the third message in our summer sermon series entitled Faith in Action, Lessons Learned from Old Testament Saints. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. This morning, for the first time, we're going to be hearing from our youth director, Richard Frankowitz, as he brings a message. Now, he speaks to the youth each week, but it's the first time that he's been asked to preach here for our main worship service, and I'm very grateful to him that he's been willing to do that. I think that he has a really good message from God's Word for, for us this morning, and so I hope that you really appreciate that as well. Uh, Richard came to Sardis Fellowship at a pretty difficult time to start youth ministry two months before COVID hit. How hard to try to build connections and get this ministry going when COVID hit the way it did and there were so many lockdowns. But Richard is doing a great job. And there's a good solid core of youth who are going to be, uh, they have been meeting through the summer and re-engaging this fall when we get back to regular kind of routine of life. We're also grateful for his wife, Jen. Um, Jen is such a servant. She's helped us out in many ways. And they're going to be celebrating their first wedding anniversary on September 12th. So... Richard is going to be bringing God's word this morning, and I just want to pray for him. Father, I thank you for Richard, and I pray a blessing on him as he brings your word to us. May our ears be prepared to hear your word to each of us through this story of the life of Joseph this morning. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hi there. I'm Youth Director Richard, and today is part three of our Faith in Action series. We're talking about people who were attributed for acts of faith in in Hebrews 11. We first looked at Noah, and then last week at Abraham, and now this week we're going to look at the story of Joseph and how his faith and trust in the God of his fathers led him to action despite circumstances of injustice and hardship. Now, I'd like to begin with some context. So Adam and Eve were in the garden. They sinned, so they were kicked out of the garden, and the humans were separated from God. But God had a plan to reunite us with him, and this plan started with a promise, a promise that he made to a guy named Abraham, who Rod talked about last week. Abraham was the man of the promise. He had a son named Isaac, who was the child of the promise. Isaac had a son named Jacob, who was later renamed Israel, and Jacob uh, was the continuation of the promise. Jacob had 12 sons. The 12 tribes of Israel actually start with these 12 brothers, mostly half-brothers, but uh, Joseph was number 11 in line, and, but he was the firstborn of Jacob's favorite wife. Now, Joseph, this guy was the hand of God's promise for his family. He was the next step in God's plan for the people of Israel, and we're going to see that in his story. Joseph experiences a lot of hardship in life in his life, and we're going to take a look at how Joseph responds to hardship and injustice. So there's 12 chapters that make up the story of Joseph. So we're going to just briefly illustrate a snapshot of that story, starting in Genesis 37. So Joseph, the favorite son of his father Jacob, has dreams about his family bowing down before him, and he starts excitedly telling all of his brothers about how they're going to be bowing down to him, because that's pretty exciting for him. Naturally, Joseph's brothers get angry, and they decide they're going to throw him in a pit. They want to kill him. They decide not to kill him. Joseph's brothers end up selling him into slavery to some traveling traders, uh, and then his brothers fake his death. Joseph is then taken to Egypt, and he's sold to an Egyptian official named Potiphar. The Lord blesses Potiphar's house because of Joseph. 
uh, and Joseph is, is put in charge of Potiphar's house. Now, eventually, Potiphar's wife tries to repeatedly sleep with Joseph because apparently he's a good-looking guy, as it says in Genesis 39.6, but he denies her. Then she falsely accuses him and has him thrown in prison. And then near the end of chapter 39, it says the Lord was kind to Joseph and gave him favor with the prison warden. And the warden ended up putting Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners in his prison. And in chapter 40, the royal cupbearer and the king's baker were thrown into that same prison, and eventually, they end up having some dreams. Joseph ends up interpreting those dreams. He says that the baker's going to die and that the cupbearer is going to get reinstated. Good for the cupbearer, I guess. Uh, those exact things happen, and then Joseph is forgotten in prison for the next two years. The guy had a really rough time. Joseph faced injustice and hardship over and over again. From the hatred of his brothers thrown into the pit, sold as a slave, torn from his home and his family, the people that he loves that love him, a complete loss of control over his circumstances. His punishment for righteousness ends up being that he's falsely accused and thrown in jail. And then after helping the cupbearer, he's forgotten and abandoned again only to be remembered when he's once again useful to the cupbearer. And eventually, he has to deal with seven years of global famine. There was a lot of injustice in Joseph's life. Joseph suffered greatly. But in those sufferings, Joseph made a choice, and his character shined again and again. Sometimes we experience suffering, and we ask the question, why? We wonder why God would let us experience hardship, pain, injustice. One thing we see a little further on in the Bible's overarching narrative is that the nation of Israel, the children of Abraham, who Rod talked about last week, the biblical Israel, they experience lots of hardships. And often Israel's sufferings are purposeful to be a time of testing. I want to quote uh, a guy named Dr. Ted Roberts. He's an author, speaker, uh, he was previously the senior pastor of East Hill Foursquare Church in Oregon. This is what he says. He says, God doesn't bring us into a time of testing in order for him to see what's in our hearts. He already knows it better than we do. The trials are for us to discover what's in our hearts. God sets up the trial so that we can discover that we can make it. We can sometimes have the perspective of seeing trials as something wherein we need to prove to God that we can succeed, that we can do it. But God knows everything. There's nothing that we can show him that he doesn't already know. Sometimes God allows us to experience trials so that we can put our character to the test and that so our character can grow and develop from those experiences. We first have to recognize God knows everything. There's no way around that. That's just part of his nature, which we call omniscience. So then what are trials for? James chapter 1, 2 to 4 says this. It says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So what does James say that trials are for? The testing of your faith produces perseverance so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That sounds pretty good. Romans 5, 3 and 4 follows up on that. It says this, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. 
follow that path again. Sufferings, perseverance, character, hope. We start with sufferings, but we end up with hope, and we need hope. Hope is able to give us a reason to keep going when we feel like we want to give up. Both these passages speak to how hardship produces perseverance, and that perseverance leads to the maturity of character, which grows to produce hope, and hope is powerful. Sometimes trials are for character testing and personal growth. Now, sometimes trials allow us an opportunity to be stretched, and in that stretching, we become stronger. You know, think about muscle growth. When we're working out or when we exercise, we push our bodies, sometimes even to their limits. Now, what I've heard is that when you want to get the most bang for your buck when it comes to exercise and working out, then you need to push past the point where you feel like you need to stop. And that straining is the part where your, act, your body actually becomes stronger for it. We break down the muscle by straining it, and then as it repairs itself, it becomes more able to endure. It it's able to endure more because of that breaking down experience that it had in the first place. But sometimes you have an experience, a hardship or a trial, that you just can't make sense of it. And that's okay. What I'm saying here is not meant to be a blanket statement about all trials, all experiences, all hardships or sufferings. You know, James, James 1, 2, going back to that, it says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, not if ever you face trials, whenever you face trials. We will experience hardship. There's no way around that. Injustices and sufferings, they're painful. And, and in James, he says, consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy, are you kidding me? Like, how can he say that? <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, you know? Some of us right now are facing things that we can't even fathom finding joy in. Maybe you're facing sickness. Maybe you've just lost a job that you depended on. Maybe you're hurting from the loss of a loved one. Maybe you're experiencing abuse or you're trapped with an abuser. Maybe you're facing addiction stuck in a spiral of shame. Maybe someone you love has cancer. Maybe you've lost a child who's, who's lost and wandering and they're in desperate need of Jesus and it feels like there's nothing that you can do but pray. Maybe you're wrestling with brokenness in your marriage. Maybe you're wrestling with brokenness in your family. Maybe you're wrestling with brokenness inside. You can help me out by internally adding to my list because I'm going to miss something, and, and maybe God wants you to know that he's not missing it. He, he knows and he cares. I think about these hardships and my heart sinks. I feel pretty void of joy. So I'm not going to be a hypocrite and stand up here and just say, why aren't you feeling joyful? Because that's not the point. I'm not trying to make a blanket statement to say that every hardship is the same or for the same thing. Sometimes we experience hardship just because the world is full of sin, and that sin breeds injustice. Sometimes those experiences leave us pretty broken, and the best that we can do in those moments is just recognize that God's in control, like Rob was sharing last week with his story about his son and losing control. Maybe the best that we can do is just fall back on the truth, on that truth, and find our hope in, and with faith in the God who is a provider. He is the God who promises that he will never leave you and never forsake you. That's in Deuteronomy 38.1, Joshua 1.5, and again in Hebrews 13.5. 
He's the God who promises to be with you always to the very end of the age, Matthew 28, 20, the words of Jesus. He is the God who promises to uphold you with his righteous right hand, Isaiah 41, 10. Those are promises we can stand on. When we experience trials, hardship, hurts, we're put up against a wall, something happens. And when we get through that experience, one way or another, we grow. Now, we can grow in bitterness, we can grow in anger, we can grow in shame, self-loathing, disappointment, or we can grow in perseverance and in character and in hope. How we change, how we grow, depends on how we respond to the situation. So when Joseph experienced hardship, suffering, injustice, how do you respond? What do you do? Let's take a look at that. So there's a recurring line that illustrates Joseph's response. It appears twice. Uh, Genesis 39.3 and Genesis 39.23. It says this, The Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. And we tend to read that story and glance over the line and focus on, you know, the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success. Okay, awesome. But we're missing a big part of that picture when we do that. Let's read it again. The Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. In whatever he did. Notice something here. Joseph still had to do something. In Potiphar's house, the master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything that he did. Joseph didn't sit on his hands. He took his faith and he put it to action. God blessed that action afterward. When life got hard for Joseph, he didn't sit around and wait for God to do something for him. He put his hands to work. Now, we tend to wait for, we want to wait for God to do something for us, to let him intervene before we take action. Sometimes we say stuff like, you know, if only God were here with me, or if only God would do this, or if only God would do that. Sometimes the way that God opens doors for us is by leaving it unlocked and then putting us in a position to open it ourselves. God pretty much said to Israel, you know, I give you this land, go and take it. God didn't, you know, kill everybody in the land and just give them a bunch of empty cities to move into. He gave them a promise. And then the Israelites had to go themselves and take control of the promised land. And God didn't abandon them either, by the way. Joshua is full of God's hand making it possible. But they had to step out in faith. Sometimes I forget that God is here with me. We can feel like God's not with us in the moment. I definitely did. There was a time in my life where I was trying to do things my way. I was trying to live life on my own terms, not on God's terms. And there were people in my life that were trying to help me recognize the reality of my situation. They were trying to speak truth into my life and help me notice how I was walking away from God's intentions for my life, how I was stepping back from his plan. My response was that these people just don't get me. They don't understand my situation. They don't know what I'm going through. And I was blind and oblivious to what God was speaking into my life. You know, eventually I did finally realize how far I had strayed from God's plan for my life. And I chose to take what I have and just leave it behind. I decided to go tree planting up north in Prince George, hoping that I would somehow be able to find God out there 
because he, he, I couldn't see him where I was. I was thinking, man, I need to be somewhere else in order to hear from God because I just can't see him right now right here. And that's kind of insane. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because people go tree planting to work hard because they are desperate to make money. I was just desperate to hear from God. <laughs> so naturally, I was in for a world of hurt because tree planting is brutal. Now, now that I was ready to listen and I was up north in Prince George, I discovered that God was actually already speaking loud and clear from back home. He had never left me. He never leaves us or forsakes us. That's the same God who made that promise. It wasn't until I went looking for God somewhere else before I realized that God was actually with me the whole time. God never abandons us where we are. He never leaves us. He doesn't leave us, you know, in the pit. He didn't leave Joseph in the pit either. Joseph has a really long story. It's 12 chapters. It's a whole 111 years of his life, 110, sorry. And he has no idea when God is going to do something. He has no idea when his story is going to end. But he doesn't just wait around helplessly for God to go ahead and step in there and do something for him. Even when his situation feels hopeless, even when it felt hopeless, he put his hands to work, trusting God anyways. Now, Joseph did wait quite a lot. <laughs> I'm not saying that he didn't, but it didn't actually look like waiting. It wasn't like Joseph was standing in line or sitting on the couch. Joseph 37 verse 2 says that Joseph was 17 at the start of his journey. He was just a kid. And then he went to Potiphar's house. He was sold into slavery. He was taken to Egypt, and he spent a bunch of time there until he was put in charge of it. And then he was put in charge of it for a while before he got kicked out and sent to jail. And then he was in jail for a while until he got put in charge of the jail. And then he was in charge of the jail. It says sometime later after Joseph was in jail, the cupbearer and baker were thrown in prison. That's Genesis 40 verse 1. Then after the two men had been in custody for some time, Genesis 40 verse 4. Then they had the dreams that Joseph interpreted. And then the cupbearer was reinstated and totally forgot about Joseph in prison for a full two years. That's Genesis 41.1. After the two years abandoned in prison, Pharaoh has a dream that needs an interpretation and they call on Joseph. That's Gen and Genesis 41.46, it says that Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh. That's 13 years of Joseph's life between the pit and the palace. 13 years of hardship, injustice upon injustice. That's a long time to wait. But again, it didn't look like waiting. Joseph took action with faith in God's promises. Let's look at how God fulfilled those promises in Joseph's life, picking up right at the end of the 13 years when he's still in prison. Now, Genesis 41 you know, Pharaoh has a dream that needs to be interpreted. The cupbearer remembers Joseph, and, and Pharaoh sends for Joseph. Joseph comes to the palace. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. He predicts there's going to be seven years of abundance, followed by seven years of famine. Joseph has made Pharaoh's right-hand man for his wisdom. He's put in charge of everything in Egypt and basically becomes the most powerful man in the world, aside from Pharaoh, because that's how much power he has. He's second only to Pharaoh. Now, Joseph is in charge of storing up the food for the famine during that seven years of abundance. And then famine comes all over the land. And then during the famine, Joseph's family finally comes to get food from Egypt. But Joseph's family doesn't actually recognize him anymore. 
Joseph ends up sending his brothers back home to get their youngest brother. And he keeps one brother in Egypt, sends their money back home with them along with some food that they need. And the brothers come back for more food a while later with their youngest brother. Joseph weeps at the sight of his youngest brother, which is the only one, by the way, who shares a mother with Joseph. That was the favored wife of Jacob, which is why now the youngest brother is the new favored son of Jacob. Joseph feasts with them. And he has his own silver cup snuck into the sack of the youngest brother and then sends a servant to go fetch them again after they leave another time to bring them back. And when, Joseph, when, when they come back, Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. And his brothers, by the way, are spooked because they tried to kill him and now Joseph is the most powerful man in the world. <laughs> that would be terrifying. And here's what Joseph says. He says this in Genesis 45, 4 to 7. He says, I am your brother Joseph, the one who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And then Joseph sends his brothers home with some extra stuff to get and, and to come back with their father. Joseph's father comes to Egypt to see, and he sees Joseph, and they come and live there in Egypt. And then Jacob, or Israel, jo Joseph's father, uh, blesses his descendants, his sons and grandchildren, and then Joseph's father dies. Joseph and his brothers go to bury their father back in Canaan, and the brothers ask for forgiveness. Joseph forgives his brothers and gives instruction regarding Egypt, his bones, God's promises, and then Joseph dies at 110 years old. That's Genesis 50, 26. So that's the whole story now of Joseph. And throughout this story, despite all of the hardships that Joseph experienced, he was constantly working with faith in action, trusting that God was with him. Even when he was sold as a slave, even when he was thrown in jail, even though he didn't know the end of the story, he just trusted in God's promises. The ones, by the way, that were made to his great-grandfather, Abraham. That promise that was made was Joseph's foundation. He stood on that. And he tells his brothers, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Again, in, in Genesis 47, 45-7, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Right here, Joseph is looking back on his life and he's recognizing how God is moving. This is about Joseph trusting God's promises and putting his faith to action. Joseph was looking back and seeing God's hand working through his life, working through Joseph's circumstances and working through Joseph himself. And then at the end, he reaffirms that it was all about God's promises. Genesis 50, verses 24 and 25. God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised and on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath, and he said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. That statement, by the way, is what Joseph is attributed for in his faith in Hebrews 11, which is what our whole faith in action series is about, is these people... Trusting God and taking action, which is the story of Joseph's life. I think it's clear that Joseph's faith is evident throughout his life's story by his faith-filled action. Now, his brothers were probably weary about what was to come. 
They experienced hardship through the famine and knew that their sin against their brother and the sin against God was still to be dealt with. The brothers were not walking their lives out with the same faith that Joseph was. Joseph saw God's vision, provision in every circumstance, even after hardship and suffering. He knew God as the God who provides, and he trusted in the promises that God made. This is our example of faith. Faith to recognize that God is with us in all circumstances, and faith to trust that he will continue to provide, and faith to know that in light of who God is, that we are called to live lives that are honoring to God. When Potiphar's wife repeatedly tempted Joseph to sleep with her, he refused again and again in order to honor his master and not sin against God. He made a choice, a choice to do something. And in that case, he chose to do the thing that was most honoring to God. There are three components I think we can pick out of Joseph's response to hardship. Trusting, doing, and waiting. First, he trusted the God who made those promises to his great-grandfather. He trusted in those promises. He stood on those promises. And then he did something, putting his hands to action instead of sitting around and expecting God to do something for him first. And then he waited because only God knows how it's going to play out. Only God knows the end of the story, which requires him to go back to the start and trust and act and wait. Because his waiting didn't look like waiting. It looked like action. It looked like trust. It looked like trusting and acting and waiting. Joseph's method looked like faith in action. That was his method, his pattern. Trusting, doing, waiting. Rinse and repeat. In Potiphar's house, trusting, doing, waiting. And God blessed the work of his hands and put him in charge of the whole house. And then again, we see that pattern in prison. Trusting, doing, waiting. And the warden put him in charge of the whole place, the whole prison. Can you imagine a warden putting like a prisoner in charge of a prison? That was because of Joseph's method. Trusted, trusting, doing, waiting. And then trusting, doing, waiting is what allowed him at the end of the story to be able to forgive his brothers. In Genesis 50, we're going to read verses 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father has left these instructions before he died. This is what you were to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of your servants of of the God of your father. And when the message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers came and threw themselves down before him and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and for your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. Joseph wept because he knew his brothers still didn't get it. His brothers lied, claiming that their dad wanted Joseph to forgive them for their wrongs. Joseph did no such thing, or Jacob did no such thing. And Joseph He saw through that. He wept. God allowed that suffering for Joseph as part of his plan to fulfill the promise made to their fathers. And Joseph saw that. He recognized God's hand. 
I just want to read that verse one more time uh, in, in a bit of a different version. It says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What others meant for evil, God meant for good. One of the most defining moments in Joseph's life. Joseph was looking back on all the injustices, all of the suffering, all of the hardship, and he saw God in his life. I have some questions to close. What trials, hardships, or sufferings have you been faced with? In what ways is God working in your life to produce character? What does it look like for you to follow Joseph's method of trusting, doing, and waiting? God made plenty of promises. Joseph took one and he stood on it. What promise are you standing on? What promise can you take hold of? Do you have an area in your life where you've been waiting for God to do something, but maybe God's enabled you to do something about it? Can you think of a small step that you can take to walk out in faith in an area where you're hoping to see God's hand? I'm going to ask you to, to pray about taking that step. Give thanks for God's promises. Pray for God's hand. And for God to give you opportunities to open the door for grace to be able to wait in a way that doesn't look like waiting. And when you look back in your experiences, when you look back in your life, can you see the hand of God? Can you recognize where God is working? Can you recognize his voice? And lastly, what opportunities do we have to be part of God's plan to save lives? It looks different for us, right? For Joseph, it was feeding people during a famine. We live in a pretty different context where saving lives means drawing people to the one who gives life. Drawing people to Jesus Christ. That is our mission. That is our opportunity. So let's look for ways to put our faith to action. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your everlasting love, for your grace and a mercy we so constantly need. Thank you for your presence and hand on our lives and that you are faithful to every promise. Thank you that we can stand on your word as solid truth to uphold us when we are weary in the face of hardship and suffering. Lord, as we experience suffering, injustice, and hardships, whether they be trials for growth of character or ones that don't make sense at all, Help us to recognize your presence and to know that in all things, we can depend on you who never abandons us no matter where we are. Help us to know how to trust you with faith like Joseph. Give us strength and courage to put our hands to work where the opportunities lie and bless us with the patience to wait and the motivation to do so in ways that don't look like waiting. Give us eyes to see your presence and how you were at work in and through our lives so that we might put our hands to work to, in drawing others to your love and into the open arms of Christ Jesus. Have your way in us, we pray. We give you all the praise, honor, and glory. Amen. Now, we're going to put up some questions for in, in closing. So here's the questions. You can uh, talk about those uh, with, with those around you, or if you want to make a call to somebody. or uh, These are the questions. In what ways is God working in your life to produce character? What promise of God are you standing on, or what promise of God can you take hold of? 
When you look back on your experiences and on your life, can you see the hand of God? Can you recognize where he's working? What opportunities do we have to be part of God's plan to save lives? Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.